Welcome to the Dandelion Podcast. My name is Jordan Miller, and today's conversation is with Jens von Bergman. Jens is the co-creator of Mountain Math, which is an independent Vancouver-based company centered around data analysis, management, and visualization, and Census Mapper, which is an online visualization tool that, among other things, allows people to create interactive Canada-wide custom maps based on census data. He holds a PhD in mathematics, and he taught for several years at Michigan State University and the universities of Calgary and Notre Dame. Jens is a very interesting guy for a number of reasons. He's traveled to and lived in a variety of different places throughout the world. He has strong beliefs about the power of open data that have fueled his work on Census Mapper, and his expertise in data analysis make his positions on various local issues always worth hearing. And to top it off, he's very articulate, well-reasoned, and a pleasure to speak with. Our conversation is broadly split into three sections. The first revolves around Census Mapper and the implications of making data visualization more accessible to the general public. The second section is about housing. We spent a good amount of time talking about our regional housing crisis here in Metro Vancouver and the role that more robust data analysis could play in helping us get to the bottom of it. Jens also breaks down the cultural differences in how we view home ownership versus renting, and why in places like Germany, a sizable proportion of the population choose to be lifelong renters. The final section is a somewhat self-serving one, concerning his experience as a cargo bike dad. Amy and I have our first child on the way, and naturally I've been spending more time thinking about the effect that growing up with a cargo bike will have on his life. Here, Jens talks about the role his bullet has played in his son's development and gives his best pitch for encouraging more families to consider the cargo bike lifestyle. As mentioned, we spend a substantial portion of this conversation talking about Census Mapper, so if you've never checked it out, I would encourage you to play around with it a bit, uh, either during uh, listening to this podcast or before you do. Uh, You can check it out at censusmapper.ca. And for more information about Jens's cargo bike, check out LarryVersusHarry.com, or feel free to contact me. So without further ado, I bring you Jens von Bergman. Enjoy. When did you end up moving over here? Um, well, it's been a process, sort of. I moved to the U.S. for grad school. Moved around quite a bit within the U.S., yep. then to Calgary, then back to the U.S., Calgary, U.S. for a couple of years, and then at some point to Vancouver about six years ago. Oh, okay. And you've been, it, when you moved to Vancouver, was it to, to take on a professorship here, or was it? No, um, my, my wife and I always had positions at different universities, Okay. so we were both in academia, yep. and um, so that became sort of um, untenable when our uh, son was born. Sure. It just didn't make any sense. And so I kind of retooled and uh, we relocated here where then my wife took a job at UBC. Oh, okay. And then, yeah, and then I did my own stuff. Perfect, perfect. Um, okay, let me refresh because now we got everything running. I'm sitting here with Jens von Bergman and uh, we're, we're at his, uh, his lovely home here in the UBC campus. Um, I guess I wanted to start by just getting you to do the whole background thing. So um, you did a little bit of that just now, uh, your, your childhood and, and moving out here. But uh, I guess um, 
Take me back. So you you were a professor at a couple of different places prior to, to yeah, moving here. Yeah, postdoc um, professor at uh, different universities. Um, so if I did postdoc in Calgary, I was a visiting assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame in uh, in the U.S. and also at Michigan State. Yeah. And um, then yeah, and that was after graduating with a PhD in mathematics, yes. and then. Um, yeah, teaching research at these uh, different institutions. But then when our son was born, um, because my wife and I usually were at different universities, sometimes we kind of got a year together at the same place, but it um, was a straining thing to start with. And then with a son that certainly didn't, with a kid that didn't make any sense. So I kind of retooled and uh, we relocated here to uh, Vancouver. And my wife took a job at UBC. Mm. And what was the original... Um motivation to to move to North America for for school and well yeah so I came to North America for grad school I did my undergraduate in Germany and um, then initially I was just going to go for a year but then I kind of got stuck and I went to a bunch of different places started out in Denver then went to Michigan then to New Jersey then Michigan and um, yeah it just um, was a bit of a random track around I guess uh, the typical academia thing mm. And that continued with the jobs for a while, and then now we are kind of settled in Vancouver. We've probably been the most stable here so mm. far. Is this is this your ideal? Is this your um, your your favorite place in, in North America so far that you've lived? Or uh, every place has its ups and downs, and um, this place certainly has a lot of ups. Mm. Um, so we like it here, and I think we're going to stay for. Well, we've said that before, but I think we're going <laughs> to stay <laughs> foreseeable future at least. Yeah. Uh, how was Michigan? I, I grew up about an hour outside of uh, Detroit, so I'm okay. familiar with Michigan. How did you like your time there? It was nice. Um, it's very different, much more people-focused, I found. People are very friendly. Um, life centers around people. There isn't really all that much to do. Hmm. And um, so lots of dinner parties. And um, Plus, it, it was a stage of my life, um, graduate school mostly, where um, you, know, you just meet lots of interesting people. Right. And... Um, it was, it was a good time. Centered around people. I've never heard of it uh, described that way. I mean, I guess that, that sort of applies to a lot of different places, not just Michigan, right? But um, yeah. different different styles of cities, I suppose. It does. I mean, when I was in Calgary, life was more centered around the mountains. Right. So, uh, Makes it, um, sense. How would you say life is centered around here? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's definitely more multifaceted than Calgary, I'd say. I mean, the seawall is a big part of my life, I'd, um, mm. for sure. I mean, partially just of where I live, up at here at UBC. I basically yeah. drop down Marine Drive, and I'm at the seawall, and that's my my route to the city. So the way I always experience the city is essentially from here through the seawall, and then it branches like into Chinatown, or into um, Science World Chinatown area, yeah. Gas Town, and then going back up, or it goes um, through the uh, Hornby Corridor. Mm. up to Cole Harbor and around there, Stanley Park, or just um, um, the, I guess they call it the South Seawall along the West End. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how that's south, but <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've heard people call it. Mm. Um, so, th- so those are the usual action rays. The default weekend would be just to drop down by the, with a bike. And um, we used to make plans, but then it happened that Plans never really worked out because something interesting happened along the way, and we got sidetracked. And right, um, I so I wanted to have you on, particularly because so first of all, 
I'll say this. When I, when I first met you, I met you at the, um, the hub committee meeting the, the first time. Uh, and, and I didn't know anything about you. I just I found out that night that you were a, a guy that has a bullet. And I was just starting to, to become a dealer for, for Larry versus Harry. Um, and then subsequently, I, I found out uh, more about what you do just through social media and, and your websites and stuff. And I, I realized, okay, this is an, an intelligent guy that is doing interesting things. And when I began thinking about doing this type of thing, we're trying to bring focus to, to people that are contributing positively to to the region um, in interesting ways. I, I thought about you uh, as one of the primary people because of the, the whole census mapper thing and, and how that's just sort of open and out there for people. Um, I, I, when I go on there, I, I, I wish I was more um, able to, like the whole functionality of creating your own map, right? Uh, like I'm just someone that goes on there and wow, this is interesting. I'm, I'm naturally attracted to maps, so anytime there's, there's map and there's data connected to it, uh, I could just spend time on there and, and going through the various neighborhoods and, and various categories of how data is, is separated on your, on your site there. So um, to start, maybe, maybe tell me about Mountain Math and, and what you guys do generally, and then get into the, uh, the whole census mapper thing, if you would. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's going to be a long story. So um, <laughs> That's okay. Well, when, when I came to Vancouver, I was basically looking for new things to do. And um, fairly early on, I um, had this idea that um, something I learned in Taiwan okay. about daycares, um, which I felt there was a huge need for a um, more organized way for the day-to-day operations. So... Um, Long story short, um, daycares in Taiwan uh, face a lot of government regulation um, in terms of keeping data on their children. So this starts from simple things like body temperature three times per day to, um, you know, growth factors like height, weight, head circumference, immunization records, um, even things like um, diaper changes. and there's also an expectation on the side of the parents to also get that data. And all of this happens on paper. It's a huge administrative burden on the daycare operators and the teachers. Sure. And so when I saw this happening, I thought, well, first I thought, this is ridiculous. Why do they even have to keep all that information? And then I thought, well, that's the way they do it there. There must be a better way, though. So I built a system that um, essentially... Um, the teachers all get an iPod Touch. It's optimized for data input. It goes into a central database, and now the different um, people get different views into the database. So the parents get the view about their children, where they get their day-to-day data, just mm. like they did before, um, but also get historical data, um, which is now easy to pull out of the database. Um, the government, you can just print off the government records in whichever way you want. Um, the daycare operators get a better idea about how their daycare operates and uh, get data that way. And um, so that was a system I built and market in Taiwan. Hmm. And um, 
then so, so yeah. let me stop you there for a sec. How did you actually get involved into in, into a place where you're building a system for these well, daycare? Well, really, what happened is that we were traveling in Taiwan. My wife is from Taiwan, mm. and um, our at that point uh, maybe one year old or one and a half year old son was at a daycare for about a couple of days of um, relatives that operated this daycare, and um, so. He just kind of joined in. He was deprived of children as we were <laughs> traveling, and uh, sure. he greatly enjoyed the experience. But um, that's when I got exposed to this, and um, it's just something where I started looking at, and I thought this something has to give there. Right. So at the end of the day, the system that we have now saves a teacher on average between one to two hours per day in terms of time savings, which is Pretty quite substantial per yeah. teacher. Yeah. And, um, well, I'm not going to go into the marketing pitch here with you, but um, this is <laughs> there are many other benefits that um, um, I believe come with this system. And um, it's fairly well received there. And so, yes, so and um, that took up quite some time to build, to um, develop, to fine tune, to run. And uh, when it started running fairly smoothly and really didn't require all that much work on my part anymore, I just had some free time to toy around with other things, <laughs> and that's when I slowly slid into the local data fields. Sort of living in Vancouver, one gets interested in lots of issues yep. that Vancouver definitely has, and um, so I did get interested in them, and I started playing around. Um, the first map I've ever made in my life was one of teardowns <laughs> in Vancouver. Uh, which has been a recurring sort of theme and work that I've done. And um, also a friend emailed me a data set on census data. And I sat on it on housing-related census data. And mm -hmm. I sat on it for about a week. And then I thought, I just got curious. So I built a map. And because I'm not really a map type person, the only way that I knew how to build a map was to make an online web map oh, okay. for me to view it. So that's what I built. And so I put that online. And so it sat there for quite a while until um, Ian Young from the South China Morning Post came across it. And there was some variables in this map um, that really um, um, drove his interest there mm. um, that looked at um, basically people that have um, more income, um, higher shelter costs than income. Right. And so this was something that um, then he wrote a story on that um, then got a lot of follow-up news coverage. And um, people asked me lots of questions about census data. And I just told them, wow, it's census data. I don't know. Just look it up. I don't know what it's like in Toronto. Just look it up. Right. And I, after a while, people said, I thought, well, maybe I should look it up. So I looked, and it was surprisingly hard to just look up very simple census data. And um, after that experience, I thought, well, maybe there's a real need. Census data is so important. Um, we go through all this effort five years, costs a lot of money. It's, it's a really big undertaking. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be widely underused. It's not very accessible except for experts. Um, and so I decided that that should be changed. And I sort of set off on this kind of hobby. And I just build a system how I think it should work. Um, to make it much more accessible. Mm -hmm. And so I imported the data into my own database, restructured it, and made it as a fairly flexible web 
mapping platform where now you can just go in, you can say, oh, I want to make a map, whatever variable I'm interested in, click on it, and you immediately get a Canada-wide map. Yeah. Um, and um, on top of that, I added, um, I set everything, on, integrated it on R, which is like a statistics package to do analysis. And um, this whole thing, the more advanced mapping capabilities that I haven't opened up generally, it kind of ballooned a bit out of, proportions so that now I do feel in some sense since it's taken quite a bit of time that I have to recover some of those some of that effort financially too so um, I feel like I have to keep some of the capabilities locked up sure but I'm very happy that um, a lot of it I'm quite comfortable opening up for everyone to um, start answering these very basic questions can you tell me about the, the motivation to to do that I mean it sounds like it just sort of happened organically in a way, um, but your motivation behind just sort of making it wide open for people to access? Well, really, I, I always feel that um, send, like data in general, um, the more accessible and the more open it is, um, the better it is for everybody, mm -hmm. at least for most data. And um, so Stats Canada did in, I think, around maybe 2013, they opened up their data. It used to be proprietary. You had to pay to get access to census data. Right. And that changed. And that aid data was made freely available to everybody. Um, but the tools to access this data, do anything with it as a non-expert, were just not there. And um, even as an expert, it was actually quite a bit of pain to, to, to deal with this. And um, so what good is open data if you can't really access it. All these other barriers in front of it. And so in many ways, I, I feel fairly strongly about this as sort of, an, sort of the open data advocate of me. And, um, and then the curious person in me also um, started to, to really look into this and dig into this. And um, yeah, and, and opening up at least part of that was one of the first steps. Is most of this. this is this fairly recent? I mean, the article that you mentioned uh, that was about a year ago or more. Oh, was maybe two years. Two years ago. Two years ago. So then, maybe about a year and a half ago, I started to think about Census Mapper. Okay. When I got more and more questions about, well, how about Toronto? How about this? How about some other variables? Because yep. I only had a limited set of variables for a limited geographic region. And that was really just what my friend emailed me. It wasn't right. even anything I picked or chose. It was just. Um, just that. But it's start. And yes, and so then after that, when I looked at this much more systematically, um, I just built the system around it to, to make this. And then, so how long has it actually been live? I think the first time it was really sort of live and ready was about Halloween, not the last one, but the year before that. Mm -hmm. So it's about a year and a half now. Right. Okay. A little more than that. And, um, and that was where we made some kind of like just silly maps. We predicted like a trick-or-treat scene maps to oh, like yeah. a trick-or-treat age children. And it really took off at that point. We had about 150,000 unique visitors in three days. Wow. Coming and browsing through the site and looking at this data. Um, it, it broke our server initially. <laughs> until we um, started to optimize a couple of the queries and uh, speed things up a bit yeah. on our end. But um, it, um, yeah, and we started to see um, that this is really something where 
people use it. It wasn't something that was very deep um, in terms of the information people got out of it. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting enough. It resonated with people. And subsequently, we've had maps that um, show more serious issues, um, you know, anything from child poverty, which is one that, that still gets a lot of um, views. And, and especially now that we have more censuses in the system, where we can view changes over time, which is not always easy, but um, is something valuable too. So you have uh, uh, your own maps on there that you've created, and then you have the the option that I alluded to earlier where people can create their own maps. Yeah, that's correct. So um, people can, all, can go on there and um, you just have to create an account if you want to save it. But if you don't want to save the map, you, you don't even need to do that. You, there's an option to say make my own map and you go on it. it you can uh, then access the list of available census variables or you can even search by them in a search field. And mm -hmm. um, just a couple of button clicks later, you will have a map that is automatically Canada-wide that shows you that variable, either as a raw number or as a percentage of something. And um, I mean, has that that uh, additional functionality has that shown you some some maps or uh, I'm wondering like if it has allowed you to see something that you wouldn't have expected that people are interested in, like uh, maps that have been created that. Yeah, so there were some maps that I thought were quite interesting. Um, so one of the early maps that I quite liked that other people made was one uh, was called Early Risers. So it was mapping out the percentage of people that get up before 6 o'clock in the morning. They'll leave for work before 6 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And so and you can see, of course, how and it was centered around Toronto. Uh, the map maker probably lived in Toronto and was mm. most interested in that area. But of course, it's... Canada why but it shows you how um, suburb suburban life can lead to a lot of other things like a lot of people having to get up early to to go to work so um, that I thought was a very interesting map that I hadn't thought about yeah but in general uh, one thing that I've learned and it was always a fear when I open up the census data is that um, it's also a very delicate issue um, Data on its own really doesn't tell you anything. Um, you have to interpret it in a certain way, give it a certain direction. So on Census Mapper, we have these map stories mm. to kind of guide you through this. Mm. In many ways, the same map could tell very different stories. So um, we do have that on Census Mapper where different people have made maps mapping exactly the same variable but taken it in very different directions, which I find quite interesting. you got to give me an example of that. Um, I'd have to think. Um, so what, what would be one? Um, so one example is you can look at the Gini coefficient. Gini coefficient is something that looks at the income distribution and tries to measure in some sense the income, the inequality or the spread of that income distribution. Mm. So um, an area, for example, where you would say the income would be very unequal is if you have a large group of very high income earners and a large group of very low income earners and nothing in between. Perfect equality would be where everybody earns the median income. Right. And you can use that um, based on the income distribution in the census variables to show you the inequality. But another way to think about this is you can think of this as a measure of segregation. 
So especially if you look at, say, the city of Vancouver overall, and you can look at the overall income distribution, and then you zoom in and look at the sub-regions, and if the income distribution suddenly becomes more equal, that means that um, the mix is much narrower in that region. Hmm. So you can see that as a measure of segregation, which takes this variable in a very different context. Right. Yeah, I can see how that could get pretty, uh, pretty touchy. Well, and then uh, there are many other things too. So one of the fears we've had is, um, you know, somebody tries to maybe target certain groups using census variables. It gives you, um, gives you variables on minorities, religions, languages, mm -hmm. and they can be used in constructive ways to understand city issues. Um, so, for example, recently there's been a lot of talk about Chinatown and what is happening in Chinatown what's development over time of the community there. Mm -hmm. And so one variable to look at, there are many variables to try to understand the community there, but one obvious one is language. Um, and um, so one can look at Cantonese speakers. One can look at how has it changed over the census years. Right. Where are they distributed in the city? You can look at Cantonese speakers just as mother, mother tongue. You can look at Cantonese speakers. Where's Cantonese speaking spoken at home in the household? And you can see how these things change throughout the city, and that can add to the understanding of um, where those communities live, um, how they relate to Chinatown. Um, and so, so that's something that's constructive, I think. Yeah. On the other hand, you, these variables also, we've seen how language variables as this has been, have been used by people that want to identify where they don't want to live. I don't want to live with this group. Mm -hmm. And that's something where I feel I feel difficulties with that. And sure. I feel one of the first maps that was made on Census Mapper was a map of Muslims. So when we put this out, when we opened up Census Mapper, we put a little thing in there saying, please try to be responsible and um, think about how your maps impact other people and what you do with them. And um, in some sense, that was some of our fears come alive. They're, of course, very. Um, there, there are good reasons why one would want to make a map about Muslims. Sure. And I could think of many of them, but there are also many reasons where I would say, well, maybe that's not a good reason. It was just about the time when there were some um, stabbings that happened in Toronto that were sort of hate crime targeted. Mm -hmm. And I was just feeling, oh, what am I going to do? I just opened this up, and it's sort of the first map that I get. Right. And, um, but then again, I also think that um, open data is just very important, and simply taking that away because some people may or may not use this in what I would think is a responsible way is really not a good reason to to take this down. One thing that I did with this map, I actually went in and I changed it from publicly viewable to privately viewable. Oh. <laughs> um, it never got changed back. Somebody just made this map at some point probably and then lost interest in it. Right, right. Um, but, um, so, and, and when someone uh, creates a map like that, uh, it, do you have access to like, who that person is? Or, or is that it's just completely anonymous in that way? Or, or well, if you don't even create an account and make a map, I have really right. no way of tracking it. I could look through the log files on the server to see what variables people have accessed, and right. I could maybe check an IP address 
but really this is not um, um, yeah and then at the end of the day too I mean something like that one is is uh, it would be it, it's fairly easy to make the connection uh, of the motivation for making a map like that but um, generally speaking you're still in a position where you need to read into people's motivations when you see well I don't you know, I don't really want to do that. That's not um, something. So we've modified a little bit of how other people's public maps um, can be accessed by the general public on Census Mapper. So there's a category where one can view just general other people's maps. Hmm. And um, so when you create your own map on Census Mapper, you can set it to private or publicly accessible. Hmm. And that allows you to share it with friends and social media. But um, one thing that we've done is we require at least a minimum amount of text in the map story okay. in order for it to show up on the general side. You can still share it with your friends without a map story, but we want you to give some context, put some thought into it. Okay. And uh, we found that just that alone really has um, dealt with maps that where we thought maybe that's we're not so sure. So at least if somebody puts some thought into it and puts it down into this map, we've had good experience. Right. Right. Well, yeah, that never even um, that thought didn't cross my mind that obviously people will find a way to use something like, you know, what you're providing mm -hmm. for open data for sinister reasons as well. Well, sinister. And, and also the other part of it is census data in general is hard. So um, even a simple census variable um, one could look at, um, the one that's in the news in Vancouver is a lot, is that of people say unoccupied homes mm -hmm. technically speaking is really it's homes that are not occupied by usual residents right so now what does that mean well we can go down that rabbit hole but um, in theory if you want to make a map like this it's probably advisable to look up the census variables and what they mean look up the definitions in the census dictionary go down look at the actual questions that were asked mm -hmm to get really an idea of what people thought when they filled this out, yeah. of how the census classifies these things. And um, so in many ways it's hard actually to make these maps sometimes. So this is part of the reason why for the general public we only allow the mapping of a single census variable, which um, cuts down on the difficulties of, of dealing with this. If I want to make a map of where are the seniors in poverty, I can do this. And I might not understand exactly what poverty means, what's the exact definition, right. but at least it's a fairly simple thing. I map seniors in poverty. So you, a couple of clicks, you do it. But now what I can do is I can also make more complex maps on Census Mapper where I mix and match census variables. And that gets um, difficult. One really has to understand the variables and how they can interact and be mixed to, to make interesting maps that way. Hmm. And so we haven't really found a good way to open this up part up. Do you have a sense of how many uh, uh, how many maps have been created by the public by other people? Um, yeah, I think off the top of my head, I would say a couple hundred. Okay. So um, and so uh, the question came to me that I'm, I guess I'd be wondering: do, do you are you concerned, or have you come across maps that people have made? that um, would lead them to make conclusions that are uh, based on maps that are overly simplistic? So, uh, Well, yes, of course. 
And in some way, every map is overly simplistic. Hmm. That's just and it's part of their, their virtue, right? So they take a very complex thing, like things in the city of Vancouver, and they break it down into something much simpler. Right. Um, that is, you know, we aggregate it over regions, and, and we do something, and that helps us explain things and understand the information better, too. So that's part of their virtue. It's also part of the problems with it. So over-interpreting um, these maps and misinterpreting them is something that happens all the time. And um, I remember even at the very beginning, I made a map and somebody else took it and wrote a blog post using this map and, and then tweeted it out. And I saw it and I got into an argument with this person about their interpretation. And then the person said, well, but the map says that. <laughs> and I was just sitting there and I was thinking, I made that map. <laughs> but I kind of dropped it there. And... Um, but I think that's part of that process. It's also a learning process. And by making this data more available, we can have these conversations that otherwise we could have never had. Right. Yeah, of course. As long as people are open to, uh, to having those conversations, right? Like you. Well, to, and, but I think overall, we reach, this reaches more people. It informs debate more than it would have done without those maps there. Oh, absolutely. So in that sense, I'm not too worried. And yes, of course, it does happen. And um, in the beginning, I got riled up about this a lot more than I do now. And um, I think that's just part of the process. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you create something like this and, and put it open, uh, put it out there to people, there's at some point, there's just got to be a, um, a relaxation of your control over it. Uh, absolutely. It's the only way to stay sane, I would think, if you're... But to be fair too, like I mean, I started out like I said earlier with somebody emailing me a data set of the census, and mm. I looked some of the variables and I created this map. But my understanding of the map, what the variables exactly meant, and how they should be interpreted, was quite rudimentary. Mm. And I've learned a lot over time. I'm still learning, um, and so I think that is part of that process. Right. And, um, you know, I, I went that route and um, I shouldn't probably overly judge other people sure. that go through that same process. Um, you know, it becomes difficult, I think, for me when we get into a realm where this gets picked up in the news media, where I do kind of feel like it should be a higher bar. And um, when people, I feel, strongly misinterpret certain parts and um, that have important consequences in the city right. or in the region, then I, I do feel that that becomes an issue. And I probably will be more outspoken in those cases than I would be for somebody who just makes their own map. And, right. Yeah. Uh, that kind of brings me along to the next, um, the next piece I wanted to get to is uh, I've gone through your, your blog a little bit and I've, I've noticed you sort of teased out a couple of misconceptions or, or misrepresentations of the data that you've noticed in, in the news media that, that mm. comes out, the, the data locally here, the housing data, I suppose. Yep. Um, can you break down some of, the, some of the things that maybe the general public thinks about housing in Vancouver that may not be true when you go through the data and really understand it? Yeah, so I guess the, to start off right away, we know, I think, still very little about housing in Vancouver. 
um, which is quite surprising given how important it is. Yeah. And, um, and I do think there's a, a, a strong need to really investigate these things much further. Um, census data is part of that, and I don't think um, we've barely scratched the surface. So there's a lot of things that can be done that do require a lot of work, though, to do properly. Before, so why is that? Why, given uh, that it's one of the the top issue or the one of the top two issues uh, for people here, why don't we know more? Well, um, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, the data that we have is not perfect so we could definitely have much better data on some of the questions than we do have mm. when it comes to data that we do have um, I think to do a lot of analysis on those really requires a deep dive for example even just what census data can tell us it requires a deep dive to go into um, census data that is probably beyond um, that what most of the people that are in this debate can offer right now mm. it, in terms of time, resources, or maybe even ability. It's something that's probably best done at the universities. And um, it's something that requires access to the StatScan servers to really um, look at this. Um, okay. So questions, for example, when we can look about um, how do people live in single-family homes how do they relate to incomes? How has this changed over time? These are questions that census data can give some sort of answer to. You know, where do people come from? How is the, is the income derived locally or not? And um, that um, does require, though, really um, research level access. It's something that is, um, you can't just tease out of normal census data. Mm -hmm. We have some signs in normal census data that tell us that there is a concern, maybe but not enough to really tell us what's going on. Are there, so are there people that you could point to that are doing good work in this area now that are helping us better understand what's going on here? Or? No, I think there are people at the university that could do it, but it, uh, it requires, of course, it needs to fit into the research agenda. And in order to actually get that access, level access that they needed, they would, you know, they would have to go through formal processes, get a tri-council grant, um, and then actually do that work on that very limited research question, hmm. which is really how it should be done. But um, And there are some people that can do this, for sure. But um, jobs at university, there's many different competing interests and factors. And, right. Um, this. So would you say then that it... it that type of thing, what you're describing, that's not happening right now, so we're not really I'm, I'm not aware deeper. of this. Okay. Um, but, um, so I, I think there are some institutions that probably do some of that work. I would assume that some government institutions are looking at this, but I can't be sure. Hmm. I, I mean, that seems surprising. I, I <laughs> yeah, but I should say it's a lot of work and it's not guaranteed that you get clear answers out of this. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's also not really guaranteed that these will be understood publicly and acted on in a, in a way that is constructive. Right. So when, when stories are written uh, in, the, in the news media and uh, the, the facts that they're using um, to, to generate stories, is that just surface level data that doesn't really tell the whole picture that's well, being used? Or? When I'm trying to, well, I guess maybe I should explain a little um, 
clearer what I'm talking about. So with census data, what we do is everybody, one of us fills out the basic census, mm -hmm. hopefully, or at least above 98% in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And then there's the long form or the NHS. Um, long form should give us a much more reliable answer than what we had in 2011. But um, so we fill in this additional data. So we get, um, and that's about a one in four, one in five, one in three, depending on the methodology of the census. Um, data set, um, sort of a subsample that gives us deeper demographic data. And um, so Stats Canada has these really at the individual level. They know this about people and where they live. Now, this is very private data. And so this will not be released to the general public. Mm -hmm. It's guarded very securely. Um, what Stats Canada does then is they aggregate this data up. They say in a certain area, there is X number of people that make um, between forty and $50,000 a year. Um, and they also say there's X number of people that live in expensive homes and some people that live maybe in not so expensive homes or maybe in basement suites. And so now um, what we can do is we can look at areas, for example, where um, in, there's a lot of people at poverty level income, but also a lot of expensive houses. That might lead us to believe that, um, well, maybe there's something going on that we really would like to understand better. Now the next question is, well, how many seniors live in that area? And we can look at that too. Um, maybe want to um, really drill down a little more and think about, well, let's only look at homeowners. Let's only look at homeowner incomes mm -hmm. and those kind of things. And some of these things we can do with the publicly available data. But at the end, we end up with something that says, well, there's a lot of expensive homes and there's people that don't earn much money. But we don't really understand who these people are, um, how many of them are retired, how many of them come in other funny relations. Um, so it leads us down the road of certain conclusions that we think there might be something there, but we can't really understand for sure. We can't say, okay, this is what's happening. To really say that, we now, since we have maybe a hypothesis of, that we want to test about who these people are, mm -hmm. we really need to go back down to the individual level data. Right, right. And aggregate them up in a different way to get our answer. So the individual level data, we don't get direct access to. But what one can do now is one can go down into the StatsCan data center and aggregate that data up in a different way to answer that very specific question. Okay. And that is something that requires expertise, time, money, or research grants, and, and a clear question of how that one should answer there. Mm -hmm. And it's something that StatsCan will not give access to lightly. You'll have to go through training, you'd have to go through some swearing that you don't abuse the data in whatever ways. It's a longer process and um, that's something that um, I think would be helpful to answer some of those questions that are still open there. Uh, but also I'm at this point not very confident that these answers would be, um, whatever they are, um, really taken up by the public that said, okay, now we know and we can move on or act on it accordingly. Do you and and do you feel that way because you feel like people have already come to their conclusions about the reasons why things are the way they are here? Or well, in in some way, this is something that I've seen in general in discussions about data. This it's hard to change people's minds with data. 
Um, it's not. Um, it's not natural to a lot of people. And uh, I think we all have our biases that sometimes guide us. Um, maybe sometimes it's just our research questions that we asked. And often it goes beyond that, where um, in the face of data, we keep finding other ways to saying, well, that's because um, maybe that data is unreliable. Hmm. But then when you have the same data source that comes out on a diff slightly different topic with something else that you agree with, suddenly you think that data is the best in the world and everybody should accept it. So <clears throat> I see a lot of this happening. And so I'm not sure on a topic that's so entrenched at this point. Um, I think it would be helpful, especially for policymakers and for people that do look for answers. But probably not for the general public. Just I'm not sure. I might... I, th I would really like to see it, uh, this data out there and uh, deeper look into this. Right. But I'm. But I, what I mean is because that's you. Like you want to know. No, I the, think the there's a lot of there, there's a lot of other people that want to know too. But mm -hmm. I also think there's a. Uh, I feel that there's a very strong. Um, there's just very strong, strongly entrenched area where um, the general public debate will be hard to move. Right. Right. Okay, take me back around to, I mean, we, we started this with, and then I asked you a bunch of other questions, but we started with just misconceptions that are out there right now. Oh, yes. So take me back around to that. Uh, well, in many of what, what are misconceptions? <laughs> um, well, I think the, the one misconception that I see a lot is that people seem to think... Um, that there are certain parts of the housing market that either play no role in what's going on here or explain everything. Hmm. So an example would be um, supply is the only issue that we have to deal with. Once we add more supplies, everything else will just be fine. Or um, foreigners destroyed our market. If we essentially get rid of the foreigners or the foreign money or in whatever ways you want to phrase this, um, then things will be just fine. And um, so these are deeply rooted um, conceptions that are out there, and I think they're quite wrong. So um, I think it is very clear that foreigners play some role in this market, and foreign money plays a role in this market, and we should probably understand that role. Um, I am too, a foreigner in this country. I'm actually not a citizen, I'm just a permanent uh, resident. Mm. And when I first came to Calgary, I bought even um, our first place in Calgary that we bought. We bought on money that we've mostly earned in the U.S. Um, while being on a work visa. So our down payment was mostly U.S. money. Um, we had local incomes to support this. At times, again, U.S. incomes when we kind of moved around a bit while still having this place between sort of the two people... Um, circling around this, right. this thing at that point then as, as permanent residents already. So um, it, Calgary at that point definitely was our anchor. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that is part of the, I think, the Canadian story. Um, but how exactly does this money come in? Where does it come in? So there are issues around there that need to be looked at more carefully than there are right now, I think. So... Uh, I guess, uh, in general, then, would you say that the, the primary misconceptions are just that people attribute 
um, the entire problem to one of these particular things. So uh, we don't have enough supply or it's too much foreign money and, and people are less likely to think of it more as well. It's a, it's a, there's many different reasons why. I, I think it's are. hard to do that, to have this, uh, to, and also the tolerance for ambiguity that we don't know how much this factor is there. It, it's, it's a very hard thing to deal with. We want answers at this point, mm -hmm. right? We don't want to say we don't really know and, and, and keep moving in this gray zone where we don't know how much this, how much that. I mean, it's very clear that supply is an issue in my mind. So um, if I look at the vacancy rates for rentals, um, it is very clear that we need supply. There's, um, I, I find it mind-boggling that some people seem to disagree. Um, I've even heard people argue that uh, it's just going to get rented out by foreign investors. Um, Interesting. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but um, no, and, and then the question is, what, what kind of supply do we add? It, it's a very complex issue, right? What happens if we add a new by definition, a new building that we build is not going to rent out cheap. It's not going to be the affordable stock. If you look at right now um, what is renting at Craigslist, the buildings in um, the West End that have been built in the 60s and 70s are renting at a significant discount compared to the new stuff that's going up now. Hmm. And um, that's just, and it's not because um, that. Those buildings are, um, have owners that are not greedy. It's simply because they can't ask for the same kind of rents that you can do in a new building right now. Right. So what does it do if we don't build those new buildings? Those same people that live in the new buildings now that are able to afford more um, expensive rentals, they're going to start competing with everybody else on the, on the cheaper stock. Hmm. So um, there are effects throughout the system that um, I think people don't appreciate enough. Um, is the, is the long-term solution to, uh, to have housing prices and income make sense together? Is, is that, I mean, is that what we're all working towards or? Well, so, in my mind, if we want to live happily in the city together, um, what is required is that people that live here um, pay not uncomfortable amounts of income toward their housing. And the typical numbers that are thrown out is 30%. Um, some people say maybe 38%. But in my mind, one kind of pet peeve that I have is um, the separation of housing and transportation costs. Sure. Yeah. In my mind, if you buy a place to live or if you rent a place, that has profound uh, impacts on your daily transportation and your transportation costs. So if you buy that home in Surrey and your work is in the city, that um, has impacts on your time and also direct money transportation to and from the city. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you do live in the West End and you live downtown, uh, the equation is very different. And those two can be quite comparable. So I've used census data to create some maps that um, look at housing costs, running shelter costs, and running transportation costs that I estimate depending on your commute time, your mode to work mm -hmm. data on one hand, and your just 
running shelter costs on the other hand. And um, those can be quite comparable. In fact, transportation costs can uh, outstrip shelter costs in certain areas. So these are things that we should pay more attention to and really view them as a combined metric. And one thing that we can find that if you live in the city of Vancouver, which is really almost the central part of the city, the central part is not just downtown, it's, um, it's a giant region with right. the city of Vancouver more or less at its center. Um, we're doing pretty well on transportation costs. And that is something that we need to, I think, pay more attention to in this whole equation. Um, but overall, no matter how you phrase it, housing and transportation or housing costs and income, they have to align in some way um, so that people are not strained. At the same time, we have to look at housing situations. We have issues with overcrowded households where um, the pressure to, to upgrade or um, get to a bigger place is quite strong. So we do see those, especially along the SkyTrain corridors, where there's a lot of households that um, clearly are pressured in terms of the size of the units, the number of bedrooms and the number of people. Um, we have in all of Metro Vancouver 100,000 adults over the age of 25 currently living with their parents. So those aren't um, parents living with their children when they get older, those are really children living with their parents. The parents are the household maintainers um, that sort of, yeah. So this is something where um, we can see a lot of pressures um, in the city and, and um, all these different measures combined, we, we need to work on those to, to somehow come to a new balance. Right. And when it comes really to incomes and housing, we also need to start to look a lot more at the distributions of all of these. We tend to break it down too simplistically, I think, as median incomes, median housing prices, which um, I don't think works very well in the city of Vancouver or even in the regions. For example, the city of Vancouver has a very high proportion of one-person households, even the region, which actually does outpace other cities in, in Canada. Um, and that hasn't influence on what the incomes are, but also an influence on what the housing needs are. Hmm. We have a fairly high portion of renters. And we do have a discrepancy between home prices and rents. So rents have not kept up the same kind of with the same growth that home prices have. Rents mm -hmm. have grown quite a bit, but not at the same rate. Right. So this leads in terms of um, how you spend money on, on housing to quite a difference. So if you think about the median household in the city of Vancouver, it's a renter household. It's barely a two-person household. If you compare that to, say, the median single-family home price, that makes no sense whatsoever. That's, um, you know... And I think we have now evolved past this. We maybe look at the overall median home price, but still, we really should break this up into more of a distribution to try to understand, well, how about the bottom 20% of the income distributions? How are their housing needs met? How big are their families? And how do they fit in? How about the top part? Are they fine? Yeah. And, and, and how about all this in the middle? And how, how do they match up? And in many ways, they do match up somehow. That's why we're here. But who's excluded from this process? Right. Somebody is always going to be excluded. Right. Um, you know, I come from a place where um, 
when I grew up in Germany, I grew up in a, in a rental row house. And uh, renting is uh, much more commonplace in Germany, I think, overall than it is here. Um, it, owning is not favored as much in the tax law as it is here. Oh, okay. So um, that makes quite a difference. It's um, also the idea of um, redistributing some of those um, assets. For example, housing wealth are very different. Like we have inheritance tax and gift tax in Germany. That um, this wealth transfer that we're starting to see now, intergenerational, um, that would be, it would be dampened a bit and some of it would be redistributed. We have more social housing than we do here. City of Vancouver is about 13% of tenant household, 15% live in uh, subsidized housing. Um, what would it have been? What is it in? It depends roughly? on the region again. Sure. Um, but um, generally it is high. There's a lot of city owned properties, which also keeps um, a general, um, it gives an ability to control or have a better control on the price of, of rents in general. So um, there are issues within Germany too. Germany has seen price growth in the last um, years. Um, that is concerning, but the level at which it's at is much lower. So, here. I mean, I guess when I, when I hear you describe the different solutions, it just makes me think, okay, is the solution just to loosen up regulation and allow people to build, to get creative, to build different things, to, to do different... Um, uh, different layouts with existing structures to just kind of to just open it up to, to people to, to do what they will? Well, I think we need a, a multitude of solutions here. I strongly believe we need to strengthen our social housing and public housing sector, like, um, which means publicly administered housing. Um, a simple example that we've seen now is the SROs where just one SRO, single room occupancy hotel in downtown has been condemned because it's been, um, and people are, have to move out because it's been, de- the structure has deteriorated so much. Um, I asked myself, well, serving the most vulnerable people in our community with privately supplied housing that of course want to make a profit just sounds like a crazy idea to me. Yeah. I mean, these are people that, that we should have public housing in place to help that community. And um, I, I think there's no way around this in my mind. At the same time, the um, question that you just raised, I think, is also right on. We need to um, very much rethink of how we, um, what kind of housing we allow in this city. Um, to think that social housing can solve our problems here, I think, is illusionary. Um, here in North America, in Vancouver, I don't think we can come to a situation where um, public housing can become so strong in anywhere in the, certainly not in the next 20 years, right. but even in general, to, to take that role that it does in, say, Vienna, which has been making the news a lot lately. Yeah. Um, so we need the private market to uh, fill a lot of that role. And um, one of the issues that we have in Vancouver right now is that... Um, we, um, the market is choked off, I think, in, in many ways, is um, where housing that could be built is not being built, um, where options that we would like to, people would like to live in aren't there. If we look at um, single-family neighborhoods, which we all understand now are 
unaffordable largely to most to most of us, mm. especially to young families. Um, the question is, well, what can we do better? Uh, we're starting maybe with townhouses now, which certainly are more affordable than the single-family homes they replace, but still completely out of reach for most young families right. at you know a million dollars plus minus. So. Um, I think the, the density that we need to make this work needs to be much higher. And, um, and I think these steps to, to take those are hard in the city. And a lot of people are still very attached to single-family homes in a way that I almost feel like people think, well, we have to have the single-family homes. And so we have to find anything else that somehow we can make work to so that everybody can again live in their single-family home, so maybe the foreigners, or maybe this or that, which is completely ignoring that we have more than twice as many families with children at home in the city of Vancouver than we actually have single-family properties. <laughs> I mean, just mathematically, it doesn't work. Yeah. We have to find other ways, and it's not going to get any better. Right. So, um, so something needs to give, and to me, um, the single-family neighborhoods is definitely a starting point where we have a lot of potential. I grew up in a row house. We could easily put two row houses on each narrow 33-foot lot, so there would be 16-foot width row houses. And if you do the math, um, that could serve almost the entire population of the city of Vancouver if we did that on single-family land right now. But is that so in a city like Vancouver where uh, feedback is highly valued and everybody gets a voice and decisions are made uh, slowly, um, mm -hmm. uh, so changes are made slowly, and every little uh, change in infrastructure um, requires uh, a high degree of consultation. Um, is that solution palatable to people that... Well, I think we need to start to have a city-wide discussion instead of doing this neighborhood by neighborhood, project by project. Right. Um, I think, um, I, I would think that's important in order to move this. But even then, if we were now to allow townhouses or um, say row houses on every lot in the city of Vancouver, that doesn't mean tomorrow everything will be a row house. Sure. It's gonna be a very long process as they turn over one by one. So we tear about about a thousand single-family homes a year in the city of Vancouver, 800,000 in that range. So um, most of these are getting replaced by single-family homes. Now I think if we can be more innovative about how we replace them with um, structures that, that would greatly benefit. Even right now on a single-family lot, legally we can build three units. Everywhere in the city? On every single-family single family lot. lot. Okay. So what it would look like is we have the main house, but they're not three equal units, right? So we have the main house, hmm. we have the basement suite, and maybe a laneway house in the back. Right. Now the laneway house on a 33-foot lot is going to be about maybe seven, 800 square feet big. So it's not really a family home in that sense. You can squeeze two bedrooms in there, but um, it, it's almost, to me, it feels like a wasted opportunity. Um, the basement suite, yeah, we can stuff another family into the basement. And then we have a, a big house, sort of the main house, that's yep. really 
really too big for most families. We don't have these big families anymore. Right. So even just to allow these three units to somehow merge and reconfigure in different ways that they're about equal size and instead of asking one person to go to the bank and take out a $2 million loan to buy everything and then become a landlord that they probably didn't really want to do right. to rent out all these other things. And the people that live there now in these units, um, they have a, not a professional landlord. Um, they have to somehow figure out, um, you know, they could be kicked out any time, really. They don't have the security of tenure that you would have in a purpose-built rental building. And um, financially, for the person who bought this place, um, this really only makes sense if they um, would are willing to cheat on capital gains tax once they sell, mm -hmm. just because the, the suite and the laneway house in most cases will not be eligible for the capital gains exemption when they sell. So um, with the rise that we've seen in single family homes over the last years, um, even if we look at the last 10 year period and average the rise of the single of, of land values there, um, those people are really not making money on this. From a cash flow perspective, you know, it helps them pay their mortgage, but at the end of the day, they lose when they sell hmm. on having to pay some capital gains on, on these things. So it's a, it's a structure that's set up in a way that um, it's asymmetrical. It, I, I don't think it really serves the people right. Right. So that solution you just meant, mentioned, is there momentum behind that right now? To I think I hear people talk about this a lot. I think um, there's a lot of obstacles to overcome. Um, there's people that need to um, let, maybe let go of this idea of the single family home the way they've grown up in it hmm. and find a new way that maybe works in this, what I really call a central part of the region where the single-family home really doesn't make sense. Like in Germany, you won't never find a single-family home this close to the city center, right? I mean, uh, in December, I was in Tokyo, and there, there's one. The emperor lives there yeah. in walking distance. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it's something where we need to think about um, how we use land and what we allow there. Right. So um, there are other concerns. Um, as we start to change the zoning on single-family land to um, allow denser um, living arrangements, um, for example, we would expect land values to still increase. So what that means is that the value of land still will go up per unit, it will go down. It will become more affordable per right, unit, right. but overall the land value goes up. So what that does is it creates what I would call windfall gains to the current landowners. And um, the fairness that we have already in the city is, is really greatly disturbed, I think, by this um, imbalance where people earn more just by sitting on their land than right. they are by actually working. And so this is something that needs to be dealt with in a way where we need to think about how can we um, recapture some of that in a, in a fashion that makes sense. Right. I mean, some of that added value is needed in order for it to be changed into something else. If there wouldn't be any value gain from this densifying, from the upzoning, nobody would build anything else but single family homes. Sure. 
So we do need some of that, but if it's too much, it uh, would just be viewed, I think, rightly so, as, as an unfair gain by the incumbent landowners. Right, yeah, no, that, uh, that certainly makes sense. It just, uh, in, in one sense, it feels like a necessary evil. If we could get the... That's right. I mean, there are gains for everybody else in terms of more diverse housing stock that, um, that they could move in. Right. But uh, one question that I don't really understand coming from Europe is what is it in the North American mind that would hit the sweet spot as a place where you really would like to grow your family? And I mean, I live in a condo. I feel in some sense overhoused even in the city. This condo is in, in many ways, I just find perfect for raising a family in. I'm mm. absolutely happy. But um, I don't think this is a feeling that everybody shares. And there's some deep cultural differences that I don't think I understand well enough to figure out what this, what is it to make this work? Is it the row house? Is it maybe a stacked townhouse form? Is it, is it just having to have a door at ground level? Is it, I don't know. Well, I think we're evolving, right? There was a there was a move to the suburbs, obviously, and and sort of it's my parents' generation that people moved farther and farther out in order to get that that single family home. But I, I don't get the sense that the next generation of families is as tied to that as as that generation was. I mean, we I certainly don't feel that way. I'm I'm, I'm building a family right now and and it, it's not it's just not attractive to me at all to to move out to the exurbs and and just to you know just to have that piece of land to myself and this home to myself it, it you lose community mm-hmm. um that the transportation stuff that you mentioned earlier uh the the negatives outweigh the benefits um to me, and I think there's more and more young people like that, young families. Uh, that's my sense too, but I still think that that longing for a single family home is is definitely a lot stronger than I can relate to. Hmm. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I still I feel like it'll. There's always going to be a certain percentage of the population that feels that desire for the single family home. But I, I think it'll become less and less of the, the proportion of people as, as time goes on. But I think it's always a question of compromise, too. So what is the most attractive compromise that we could build hmm. that we could, say, replace on a single-family lot? Right. What could we do if we sort of start and have a drawing board and say, what's the thing? How many units? Because that influences also the price in the end that we'll have it. How many, how much private yard do you need? Right. Do you need that front yard? Is that something, you know, sort of the porch and then the front yard and then the sidewalk and then the road? Yes. Is that really there or should we just scrap that and add it in the back? And what is the right way to do this and when you're when you're thinking about this are you also again considering what would be palatable to people that already live in that neighborhood that uh, or yeah i think that is something that you can never um just ignore but it's also something where i'm starting to see more and more uh, 
I think there's a general recognition we live in a we have a housing crisis here that does require more than just a little tinkering at the edges. And fundamentally, the idea of property that we have here is that you buy this property, like this single family lot, and you have your home on it, and you get to decide what happens inside of that boundary. Right. Um, how much you get to decide what happens on the outside of this, like on your neighboring property, I think that will have to change. I mean, right now the idea is that you get to dictate, you know, the roof shape of your neighbor's home, say. Yeah. Or this kind of idea that we have where the basement suite that we can build in, it can't have a door up front. It has to have a door in the back. Because if it had a second door up front and somebody walks down the street, they could get the impression that we're not in a single family neighborhood anymore because there are two doors. So these are notions where I'm thinking, no, I don't think this is the neighbor should be able to tell the other neighbor that they shouldn't have a second front door. Hmm. And um, because it, it has repercussions all the way down about how these things function. Right. And so where does it end? Where does it start? Like, where is the general need for more housing options stronger? Where is my need to say what my neighbor should or shouldn't do? Um, I don't know. Right. Right now, it certainly seems beyond reason. I, I would agree with that. And I think um, things have to move quite a bit um, to, to a more dense um, um, kind of constellation in, in these neighborhoods. And it's going to be a gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight. Right. Um, but yes. But so, and part of it too, my sense is that it's, it's we're, Vancouver is unique... Uh, in the sense that every uh, change in zoning is goes through council, and and it's it, is that not unique to Vancouver? How how tedious the process is here? Well, I think the zoning, in some sense, asks for that. So, in Germany, for example, we don't have a residential zoning like single-family zoning. You mm. can always build a small apartment building. So, in that sense, um, you know. The starting point is very different. Right. Um, here in the city of Vancouver, we have different kind of zoning. Some zoning where people just build whatever they're allowed to build, and they do this. And then we have this process of spot rezoning, where somebody says, well, in this area, we want to build some more. And then um, there's this whole process in the city. Things go to council. Yeah. And um, what I like about this process is it highlights some of the issues, I think, that we have very well. Because as soon as you change the zoning, you upzone, you allow them to build more. What that does is it increases the value of the overall project. And then the city goes around and they put CACs onto that project to recapture some of that value. So the idea is roughly that the city tries to extract maybe 75-80% of that added value. Now, it's a very difficult thing to do, especially in a rising market where the value that you extract today is different from the value it has tomorrow. But um, what we see in this process is how we are constrained by the current amount of housing that we have. It's sort of a measure of the hunger for more housing because if you add another floor, it it's just adds so much more value to this product. And so it shows you... Um, 
in many ways how we have squeezed the natural amount of supply that we would like to add off. And now we have to work so hard to say, okay, we allow you a little bit more here, but then we have to take, extract some of that value back because it's, you didn't earn that. That value just came by upzoning the property. Right. But we want you to do it actually because we need that housing and so, and especially if it's rental housing, the city has worked very hard, I think, to um, encourage more rental buildings throughout. So the growth of rental buildings, purpose-built rental in the city is much higher than it is elsewhere in the region, which I think is quite positive. But we still have this notion that renters really should live on their materials, mm. which I find quite offensive, um, even as a non-renter. Um, the idea that um, if you want to live on a quiet street, you have to be a homeowner. Right. It, it really is quite offensive. So yeah. we don't allow these rentals within single-family neighborhoods and a purpose-built rental in a secure 10-year environment. Right. I found it frustrating just uh, the discussion around the, uh, the provincial election that we just had. Uh, a couple of the debates that I saw uh, when they got to the, the topic of housing... Um, the, the, there was almost a, um, a pushing aside of any discussion about renters. And I mean, I, I actually can't remember which uh, representative uh, made this comment, but there was a, uh, the notion was presented that, you know, every renter is, is focused on eventually getting a single family home or not, maybe not a single family home, but home ownership. They all... Uh, Everybody at the end of the day wants home ownership. Mm -hmm. No one's satisfied just as a renter. Well, I think partially that's that's a cultural issue, but it's also something that's really enshrined in our tax code that greatly favors home ownership over renting. Hmm. And um, so, again, culturally I grew up in a different place where renting was... I would say much more normalized than it is here. Right. Um, <laughs> and um, and where I know many people that have rented all their life, and that are just happy doing so. Um, I don't know how we can. I think that given where we are at, that's probably a fair comment that a lot of renters are eventually looking toward home ownership and wanting to home ownership. But um, there are many reasons why we had that way. And I think uh, reducing some of those incentives is definitely a good start. Right. Um, I see it here at university where a lot of friends, they come here, say, as faculty at UBC. And they've resigned to the fact that for the rest of their life, they will rent. Because if you have, um, if you're on a single faculty, a single um, income here so one person faculty here the other person would be home with say two kids yeah um, there's just no way you'll be able to afford to live in the city of Vancouver not even in a condo on campus right and so um, so this is something that um, a lot of people I think don't do because they have because they want to but mostly because they have to and I would hope that we can get to a situation where um, people would want to do that too. Right. Would say that I don't want that attachment to um, the house, the mortgage, the thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm, I'm more saying when I say that 
I, I want to be a renter, say, um, it's, it's tied to the trade-off of, of living here. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to be a renter given that I live in Vancouver. So if that um, means you can stay in the city, you're fine making that compromise. Right. Yes. But I think it would be, I would hope that we could elevate that to a level where it wouldn't necessarily feel as a compromise that is just because of affordability or because um, that it really is also a lifestyle choice. Hmm. And co-op housing kind of goes halfway there. Sure. It's, um, and um, I would also appreciate that if in a rental building there could be renters could have more decision in the process of this. Hmm. In Germany, for example, in a rental building, typically the, um, own, the renters bring their own kitchen. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's, it's a very different concept. Even their own kitchen cabinets, you would rent it, the kitchen is just an empty room. Wow. Often. And so, uh, but what that does for you is that you can really have your own place in that sense. Right. So it comes with moving friction. But it also comes with a, a sense of belonging and ownership that is different, even right, in a rental. Right, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I just it, it highlights everything that's tied into how we feel about renting here compared mm-hmm. to. That's very interesting. I never considered that. Um, we've been going for about an hour and twenty, and I. I, I do have a selfish topic that I, um, a self-serving topic that I wanted to get to, and that's being a, uh, switching gears completely. Uh, that's, that's being a, a cargo bike parent. Um, I, uh, I mean, you've, you've had your bullet for how long has it been? <sighs> it feels like forever now. <laughs> um, I would say three, four years. And and you have a one son or one son yes. How old is he? So he is seven now. Okay, so he almost grew up entirely with the. Well, no, he still remembers the chariot that we had before. Okay, and there was definitely a phase in our life where the chariot worked out great. Right. And um, yeah, from from that perspective, I think ever since I knew even that we were pregnant, that my wife was pregnant. Yeah. I always kind of had the bullet in my mind. Hmm. And um, it's just a cargo bike with a box up front. Uh, I'm somewhat partial to the bullet just as a particular version of this, Hmm. simply because um, I find it just a good mixture between having the box up front and a cargo bike like this, but also having the speed and the handling of a bike that that I have come to appreciate. Yeah. Um, I mean, the bullet is just a it's just a racer in many ways. Sure. I don't race it with a kid in there necessarily, but um, um, I use it as my everyday bike for everything. Mm. And the fact that it just rides like pretty much any other bike, it's a bit heavier, but it's just so beautiful that I've never gone back to ride my regular bike after I got it. Wow. And. Um, we started out with a chariot, which I think worked great. It worked great because I could lock it at daycare and my wife could pick it up. And sort of for these things, it made a lot of sense. But once we changed to the bullet, it did change a lot of things in my life. That mm. Even I, even though I do um, 
consider myself quite bike oriented in general. Um, I didn't quite anticipate. Right. And um, yeah, there's no go, no going back. <laughs> um, so I guess I mean in a general sense, so you uh, the, the, your your son has grown up commuting, getting around his city mm-hmm. by on a bullet. Well, on a bullet, but by bike. By bike, right? So yeah, so I guess he started riding when he was three, and he okay. started riding to daycare when he was three. Uh, when I got the bullet, that changed immediately. That um, that part of him riding to daycare um, changed, and oh, maybe he was four at the time. And he only wanted to ride the bullet. It's just so much fun. <laughs> um, ever since, if, I, if, if it's a pouring day, we need to go to a class or activity and I ask him, should we take the car or should we take the bike? He always says bike. <laughs> and I love it because I don't really mind if it's raining out there. He doesn't sure. really either. Sometimes he um, puts out an umbrella. Like we don't have a special rain cover for it. Yep. It just never felt the need for it. <laughs> And um, so he is absolutely in love. And yes, he knows the city very well by just sitting up front, getting the full view. And um, yes, he rides his own bike a lot nowadays, hmm. but still rides a bullet a lot too. Okay. So that's sort of, that's sort of along the lines of, of what I wanted to, to find out from you because I, I, uh, my fiance and I, we have our first uh, kid on the way. Um, October. Congratulations. Just to, thank you. Uh, tomorrow we're going to find out the, the sex of the, the baby. Um, but I have this, I have these, um, these thoughts of the, the child growing up, getting around the city by bike and how connecting that will be for them, their neighborhood. Their, I guess their brain development too. I have these ideas in my head of how it will help their, their you know. Um, you get all these ideas uh, mm-hmm. ahead of time. But uh, I guess I'm wondering, were there, were there was this just um, when you were going to have your, your, your son, was it just uh, a matter of, you know, you, you, your lifestyle is to, to get around by bike and you're, you're going to fit the the new baby into that lifestyle or is it well to me that was always clear that i was continuing to riding bike and i think um functionally the difference between a bullet and say a chariot a child trailer is not that big hmm. so we've done things where we had this little um running bike oh, yeah. and we strapped that onto the chariot went down to spanish bank and then maybe he got out of the chariot for a bit and, and went on this little running bike along there and then maybe we put it back on and went. Well, afterwards, we did the same thing with a bullet. He would just, the bike would be in the bullet, he would be in the bullet, we'd ride down the hill, then he would do the same thing down there. But um, it just makes it simpler. It makes it more fun. I mean, it's definitely a lot more fun for the kid to sit mm. in front than in the back. Uh, more communicative because I can talk to him along the ride, doing the ride, and it would just—I um, think it just expanded the possibilities in many ways. It made it so much more, so much more obvious what to do. Right. It wasn't the, the effort was removed. Right. I, I know it's 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 difficult to compare when uh, 
you know, you have, have one son and he, and he grew up with bikes. Um, but do, do you have, do you attribute anything about him to, uh, about the way he is, about the way his, his mind works uh, to, to this, to, to these types of things, how, how you choose to, to move him around his, his environment? Mm. I don't know. I don't think I would say there's any like neurological um, <laughs> changes that I could attribute to that. I mean, he definitely has a clear connection to his neighborhood. Hmm. Um, a lot of that is also built because he rides his own bike a sure. lot, like to school every day. Um, and um, I do see some differences between, say, I mean, all his friends are super jealous. So the bike is, is really at, um, whenever he gets to ride on my bike, everybody just looks and says, oh, and, um, you know, I, I came in for show and tell. So oh, I was the wow. guy with a bullet, right? And all the kids in, in, in twos, they came and pairs that rode, rode the bike around the schoolyard and everybody lined up and took their thing. And even now, years later, sometimes kids come up to me and say, hey, could I take a ride in your bullet again? <laughs> <laughs> and it's um, for kids. It's it's a it's a great experience. I think to to be there. It's not just. It's kind of like being on a on a circus ride, like the roller coaster. Just for him, it's every day. Right. But it's also a different way, really, to I think experience the city. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's I'm, I'm no window, no nothing. You're, exactly, you're, you're uh, right there. It's tangible. It's understandable in a sense. You're not right. in this big metal box. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm tied to this idea in my mind, where it's just such a like I remember moving here for the first time and and getting to know the neighborhood and and I don't know if it's true or not, uh, but I I certainly felt a sense of understanding of my environment when I started to bike around and. Uh, more so than just jumping in the car and driving through my neighborhood there's a there's just a different feeling and i mm-hmm. i guess i'm i'm uh projecting it definitely <laughs> yes. i'm definitely projecting no, me it. too and i th- i feel the same way i mean cycling is definitely a f- felt always gives me a, a deeper connection than just driving through a neighborhood uh, as a kid and also as an adult when i traveled I, I do like to travel by bicycle simply for that reason because it I find it just the perfect balance between speed to get to a place, but also um, staying at a place as I go through it and experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it's a it's a great great way. Uh, Vancouver, especially where I live out at UBC, is not accessible necessarily by foot. Sure. Um, but by bicycle, I find I, I have that balance, and with the amenities that we do have in the city. Um, it's it's a great way to do it, especially for us. I think Point Grey Road was the key. It was the missing connection to get to the rest of the city, right. and it happened just in time for my then four-year-old to say cycle to Science World. Hmm. And I think that's um, that was definitely the first time, or maybe it was five. Probably four. Four was the first time I went over the Broad Bridge once but then uh, with five more regularly to things like science work. And that could have never happened without um, the changes along Point Grey Road. Right. I don't want to get too deep into that because we could go for another. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I mean that's I mean, you guys got a, a clear shot now, right down into the uh, yeah. into the city. And it's I mean if I go on my own, um, pretty much anywhere I want need to go downtown, it's about thirty five minutes. Um, which probably driving you get about the same. Yeah. Um, maybe a tiny bit faster if there's no traffic. Uh, quite a bit slower if there is traffic. Right. And uh, if I combine it, and this is door to door essentially, mm-hmm. so I can mostly park right in front of the building with my bike. And so it's, I mean, it's great. And always much more affordable too when it comes to when you consider. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting point too. I mean, a, a bicycle, um, a cargo bike like a bullet, they aren't cheap. So um, I've I've lots of people ask me about these bikes. And uh, when they hear the rough range, uh, price range, they always startle a little. But there's no doubt in my mind that I've saved it more, way more money. Mm-hmm. Simply just even on, on gas. Sure. And um, let alone if, you, if this enables you to say go to a one car household, which we always were, or even a zero car household, um, then um, the savings are immediate. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I would hope that in the medium term and as this becomes more popular in, in the city too, that we can find better options to maybe finance bikes like this for people just like we finance cars because they do, um, they are a little more expensive than your regular bicycle and it is in many ways a luxury item Sure. at this point, but it shouldn't be when a car is not viewed as a luxury item. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a certain dissonance in there because it serves in many ways the same function. In fact, many of them better. Um, What it doesn't serve is if I want to go hiking to the North Shore, but to be frank, I don't need my private motor vehicle for that. I can just rent one when I need one, which is very rare. My car typically sits, um, you know, it it can sit in a spot for several weeks sometimes Mm. without getting moved. Yeah. we tend to go go that route when when we get into these discussions where people will point to, but what if I want to do this one thing? What if I want to go hiking? To oh. the- well, we have great yeah. options in the city now that right. answer exactly that question. I right. mean, I think one problem is that people often don't realize the 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 sunk costs in a car. So we often read car homeownership car ownership costs between eight to ten thousand dollars a year. Um, people don't quite realize how that figure comes about. If you want to think about how many often do I go hiking and I rent a car share, which seems expensive the day that I do it. But um, it just feels different, I think, for people to pay for that car share that one day pay 60, you know, maybe even more dollars to yeah. rent that car to go hiking in the mountains and then come back. As opposed to spending a lot of money once to buy that car, pay, or maybe your lease, and then your insurance, and your gap, all these things adding up. Right. It's just we're, we're not wired that way, to, to think about costs that way. It's, it's, yeah. it's the same as your, when you, you mentioned the tying the housing price to the transportation costs. That we, right. We're just not wired to, and I think even if we hear the number, even if we know how much it's going to cost us, even if someone tells us, well, most people would argue, and I've seen this many times, that no, no, no my car costs way less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've, you've found the car that, that uh, doesn't apply to the rule. Uh, yeah, okay. 
Well, I, I, I think that's, uh, I, I appreciate your time. It's been, it's been over an hour and a half now. So, uh, I, this has been great. Um, before we wrap up here, is there anywhere you want to point people to? I know you're on Twitter, obviously, and, and the website. Is there? No, I think uh, I, I would love to point people to getting a cargo bike. Uh, <laughs> it, it will change their, your life. I mean, it's anybody who's ever toyed with this. Um, yeah, it's, there's no going back. It's a mm. one-way street. Right. I need to just I need to cut that little excerpt of the interview and, and put that out in front for people. No, and I'm not even saying that because I know that you are actually <laughs> um, the distributor for Harry, Larry versus Harry here. But um, I think the amenities the city has to offer um, are amazing, and most of them you can get to so easily by bicycle. Hmm. And the kids' experience is just phenomenal. When we have friends and, um, you know, sometimes we meet friends somewhere and then go to a different place, all the kids will pile up into my bike. <laughs> Nobody wants to ride the car. And it's not because it's a novel thing. It's, you know, I'm like best friends with all these kids out there. It's, it's amazing. They, um, they adore the rides in this bicycle. The way that they can experience the city in there is, it's just amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just it. it is, it's an experience. Yeah, and the parents get blown away if I arrive at the destination before them. <laughs> <laughs> because they're still circling for parking. Right, right. It's, it seems like the, the more and more that happens, they should get less surprised, but maybe that's not how it goes. <laughs> well, it's just I think there's deep-rooted um, sort of conceptions, bikes slow, and of course I ride maybe faster than the average overall, right? But it's... Um, yeah. Well, and, and as far as it's, it, it, it's, it's unconventional and it will be for a long time, right? So I don't know. I, I have a feeling that the city of Vancouver has moved tremendous amounts since I've been here. Point Grey Road is just one example that right. I can point to that is important just because of the... You know, I used to take the off-Broadway um, car tunnel where cars are parked on each side and you kind of, when an SUV comes at you, um, <laughs> you're kind of stuck. Right. And it's a, sometimes a quite frightening experience because often drivers do not understand um, what is a, um, a buffer in terms of a passing distance, especially of oncoming traffic that is comfortable for a cyclist. Well, even if they do understand what's comfortable, it may not always be put into practice. Well, I, I, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. Sure. But uh, yes, um, it, it, either way, it, it is a constant issue as a cyclist where um, that, that kind of mental headspace and that you don't have to deal with anymore if you to take a route like a AAA, an all-ages and ability bike route that the city is building more and more mm. that really um, just makes this enormously pleasurable. Right. Right. Okay. Let's leave it there. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Well, I thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Check out Census Mapper. It's censusmapper.ca. That is correct. CA. And yeah. it's, uh, I feel like I know this. It's, is it at, at VB underscore Jens? That is correct. And that is my Twitter. And uh, you can every now and then see the news map there that I made or um, some other ramblings. Just go to Census Mapper and make your own map. How about that? That'll be um, great. <laughs> right on. Thanks very much. Thanks. Hey there. 
I'm glad you're still here, and I hope that means you got value out of this conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, there's a few things you could do at this point. You could leave me a review on iTunes or anywhere else you may have listened to it. You could also mention it to people in your network, or you could just give me some feedback. I'm just getting started with this, so it's always great to hear that people are listening. And I'm definitely interested in hearing how I could improve as a host, or if you have any guest recommendations. So that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.